Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 1, we'll look there as a voice for God in the wilderness, a voice for God in the wilderness. Continuing with this morning's theme, uh, knock, knock, Goliath, Goliath down, you look tired. As we told jokes this morning, I told them I had 14 different jokes, I've told some during the meeting, I have one more for you. I don't know if you know a lot about Jerusalem, but if you've been to Jerusalem, there's a famous hotel called King David Hotel. Uh, There's another one not so famous. It's the Goliath Hotel. It's only a stone's throw away. So (laughs) it's only a stone's throw away. There you go. I have more, but I will not assail you this week with any more of those. So I'll save the rest of them. Bill said he couldn't find any. I have got I got a million of them. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remissions of sin. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And preaching, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me. The latchet of his shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Heavenly Father, as we read this and begin study in a book of Mark, help us to hear your word, see it, and appropriate the voice tonight that tells us of the coming of Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, We start a new series this morning. I start one tonight. And we'll be looking over the next few weeks in the book of Mark. Uh, Mark was the first book, uh, I believe, I taught at OBU uh, in New Testament. So it has a special place in my heart. I think it's, it's one that um, we can talk about some introductory things about it. And, but you can spend a significant amount of time on it when you look at the characters who are involved in there. You look at Mark, you look at Peter, you look at Paul. All of those individuals are part of that book. Uh, you know the story how that early on um, Mark had a rocky relationship with Peter and because of that he was uh, left out of some missionary journeys Uh, but later Paul spoke favorably and said he was profitable for his ministry on several occasions Uh, we don't know when but at some point uh, Mark became Peter's assistant and protege and so the early church father Papias tells that uh, the content for the book of Mark is probably Peter's first-hand account of what happened. You remember, Mark is not there, Peter is. And so he's relaying to him what happened and how it happened. And some have suggested over the years, maybe a more accurate title for the book of Mark is something like the gospel according to Peter uh, as recorded by Mark. Uh, you know, as you look at the New Testament, there are three books that see things together, and it's called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
the storyline is similar. The, uh, if you line them up, they tell a lot of the same stories uh, in the same order. Uh, sure, they skip here and there, and there's some reason for that. Um, but when you get to John, it's completely different. It, it does not follow the same pattern. And so the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptic, sin, same, optic, see, see together, see the same way. So that's what that is, is referring to. So Mark's gospel uh, probably was the first recorded record of Jesus' life. It would have been the earliest gospel, we think. Matthew and Luke most probably used Mark. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke were in a class and they wrote a paper and handed it in, the teacher would bring them forward and say, boys, we got a problem. <laughs> Seems like you copied off each other. We need to talk about it. Uh, and so as you look at those, you, you have the sense that they used Mark as a basis for how they told their story, but they told their story for different people in a different way. Uh, Mark's gospel uh, is significant in the fact that I think, first of all, and again, these are just some preparing things, not really big first point yet. I'll give you that in a minute. Uh, but Mark is, is prominent for its realism. That as you read the book of Mark, he, he offers very little in the way of interpretation or explanation. It's just the story. He just gives you the facts. It's sort of like, you know, uh, an, uh, one of the old uh, detective shows, you know, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That's kind of how he did that. It's, it's the on-the-spot, unvarnished, eyewitness account with few embellishments. So it's real. Uh, it's authentic, maybe another way to use that. A second, I think Mark is, is a gospel of action. Uh, as you look through the book, there's a key word that you find over and over again some 30 times within the book of Mark, and it is, it is the word eutheos, E-U-T-H-E-O-U-S, if you were to spell it out in English. And the idea there is immediately, straightway, directly. And so when you look at the book of Mark, the stories go something like this. And straightway, Jesus did this. And straightway, the disciples went. And immediately, they went to whatever. And so you see that over and over again. And so the book of Mark is a, a book that moves quickly. It's a shorter version as you look at the New Testament and you see the Gospels. But it's one that's snappy. I mean, it moves. It's moving quickly through the story and the life of Jesus. It almost rushes at a fast pace from one event to the other, almost, I would say, in breathless fashion. That, you know, you're like, you've just heard one story and now you've moved on to another story. And as you look at the book, you have to understand that it probably was written to Roman readers. So the people of the Rome that the gospel was trying to reach, it was written in a way that appealed to them. Now, when you look at the other Gospels in the New Testament and you think of Matthew, you no doubt have to look at Matthew and think it was written to Jews. Uh, as it starts out, we'll talk about this a little bit uh, in, in a little while, uh, things like genealogies. So in the book of Matthew, you've got genealogies. Genealogies don't make any difference to the Roman people. They could care less. Greeks don't care about it, but Jews do. It's important whose family line you came from. And then you look at Luke, and Luke is more written to the Greek. 
and the words that he uses, the explanations that he uses, the logic that you see in the book of Luke uh, lends itself more to the Greek mindset. And so you understand that Rome borrowed heavily from the Greek mindset, but it was not the Greek mindset. Rome thought differently. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, as I studied through uh, uh, school, one of them here at the University of Tulsa, uh, if you look at Greek art, you see the art is in its perfection. Everything looks perfect. But if you would look at the Roman art, they wanted more realism. And so if you had Alexander the Great, which if you know anything about him, uh, that he had a giant scar on his face. And when they did a statue of him, the artist who was Greek made him cover up his face with his hand and did the statue that way so that he could cover that that scar because he wanted it in the sense of Greek-ish in perfection as opposed to realism. As you see some other artists who did uh, Alexander the Great, you see the scar and you recognize that. So those just a mild difference in mindset when you look at Greek versus Roman. They wanted realism in Rome. They wanted it the way that it was, the guttural what it felt like. And so you see that over and over again in Mark because the third thing that you see in Mark is the emotion that comes forward in the book of Mark. His, his purpose, as you read there with me in that first part, that very first line, is that this is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the reason. It says it right there. This book was written so that you might know that he's the Son of God. Paradoxically, no other gospel emphasizes uh, the, the the human side of Jesus, especially when he when it's his varied human emotions, you see things that that get Jesus and get his emotions, and you see that in him. And so Mark is the one that uses that to speak to us. And finally, I think Mark is is the gospel that we would call the eyewitness. Again, back to Peter. Uh, Mark adds many details to the life of Jesus' life that could only come from an eyewitness. It's not me telling a story about something I heard. It's me describing a story of something I've seen. And that's why we believe it was Peter uh, who was the eyewitness that did that. While Matthew begins, again, as we mentioned with the genealogies and the narrative, Luke really stop, talks about a backstory. Uh, when you start looking at, the, you know, even the Christmas story, there's all this leading up to it that you see in the book of Luke that you don't see in Matthew, that you don't see in Mark. But Mark begins there with that rush, again, with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right out of the box. This is why. This is who he is. And that introduction is short and sweet. That's the introduction. It's not like Matthew and it's not like Luke. And I hope that you can see why it's looked at as unvarnished and comes across as straightforward in the first verse there to show that he was. And the reason that he, the way that he, say, the, the way that he showed that he was the Son of God was through his miracles and his life. So miracles are very important here. Um, you recognize in the New Testament that the Sadducees did not believe in miraculous, didn't believe in afterlife, didn't believe in angels, uh, where the Pharisees did. So in the New Testament here in Mark, you get a lot of stories about the miracles and how he is the son of God. And because he was born the son of God, he could do that. Now, 
not born in the sense of some sexual relationship between a God and a man. Remember, you look in the, in the New Testament history of, of Rome and Greece, and they had that mindset that gods would come down and they'd have sex with women and there'd be a demiurge or some sort of half-between God or whatever. And so you have to delineate the difference in the New Testament in the book of Mark in that story that the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary and did something different that was not in the way that Greeks or Romans would see a birth. And you look at it really more in a term of endearment to show that God the Father has a special relationship with Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. Uh, and so you see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you see them as God. You don't see them as something separate, but in the way that he presents himself as a deity he, Jesus, was fully God and fully human. Uh, you can't separate that. There wasn't, a, again, it's not a demiurge is the word that's used for something in Greek or Roman uh, uh, pantheons, that it's something that's half man and half, no, no, no. He's fully God and fully human. And so that in itself is a miracle. So Mark begins there. Uh, in the first chapter, and he talks about John the baptizer. He's called John the Baptist. Now, uh, there weren't any denominations. I did have, I have had people call me early in the morning after they've read the Bible all night and said, Brother Marty, was John the Baptist Southern Baptist? No, I don't think he was. Uh, not that I know of, there weren't any. He wasn't the first Baptist preacher. I read a story about a uh, friend, that, and I read it because he, he was Nazarene. And so he'd gone to the Nazarene University up in Oklahoma City. But there were a lot of Baptists that went to Nazarene University as well. And so as they were debating things back and forth between being Baptist and Nazarene, they'd spar back and forth. And so one of the Baptist boys said, well, you know that John the Baptist was Baptist. And then the Nazarene go, well, you know Jesus was a Nazarene. So I guess he, he said he won that line of reasoning. Um, but, you know, when you look at John and you look at the gospel story, what is it that we can learn from him? I think we learn a number of things, and here we start with that voice that we're going to talk about, point number one. The other was just getting you to the mindset of what Mark is as far as the gospel. Point number one. First, John teaches us what our calling is. Uh, John. Mark is the gospel but John is the subject of the first verses we're looking at. So John, uh, the baptizer, teaches us what our calling is, and that is this, to prepare the way for Christ in people's lives and point them to Jesus. Our calling is to prepare the way for people's lives and point them to Jesus. Mark tells us in verses 2 and 3 as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John's role there in the New Testament, first, his job was not only to prepare the way for the Messiah, I, I think he is fulfilling what Isaiah 40 says Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain, every hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places plain. John is fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Messiah from Isaiah 40. Uh, think of it like this. Think of John as um, a highway builder. 
My grandfather built highways in Arkansas. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Some of them are, are, are bad highways, but anyway, I can remember as a kid going uh, to where my grandfather was, and there'd be all those little yellow flags, you know, where they're marking things, and he'd reach down, grab one, hand it in the car to me and my dad and say, don't show that to anybody, you know. I always thought that was really great, but I remember him working on the highway there in, in Arkansas. In the old days of the U.S. highways, they followed paths of the former roads uh, before cars, the wagon wheel roads is where they started. But later, you know, the hairpins, the interstates, the things like that, they, they began to tear down and level those hills, didn't they? And so you see that here in Oklahoma where in the middle there's a valley where we built now a road that goes from Oklahoma City to Tulsa. And then we put bridges across it and, and we smoothed away and straightened away. That was John's job, to straighten the way, to level it out so people could see the Messiah easily and recognize who he was. So they could hear the word of God and hear the word of the Messiah and be ready and primed for him. And so this idea of the baptism about repentance. Read in John chapter 1 verse 29, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing to Jesus. He's telling us who the Messiah is. And that was John's job. I think we too are called to do that. It's our job to do the same thing. I think it's our job to point people to Jesus. After uh, all, there was someone who pointed the way to Jesus for us, right? It might have been an evangelist. It might have been a pastor. It might have been a family member. It might have been in Sunday school or wherever it was. There was someone who pointed you to Jesus. And so now we carry the good news to other people and point out that Jesus is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. An old Methodist evangelist named Sam Jones used to tell the story about a time that he, uh, it was a long time ago, where they're on paddle wheels on the Mississippi River. And when two river boats would pass, the passengers would gather on the rail and wave to each other. You know, it's, it's slow moving. It's not like it is now at <laughs> 70 miles an hour. You, you can't look up, but they could wave and see the boat coming. One day, two paddle wheel boats were passing each other, and a man who ran the boiler on one of those boats jumped up on the deck and said, look, look, to the other boat. There's the captain, the finest captain on the Mississippi. I wonder what his captain thought, because he's pointing at the other guy when he says he's the finest captain on the Mississippi. And people asked him, why in the world would you say that about the other boat? He said, last year I was on deck of my boat and a storm blew and I fell over and I can't swim. And I began to cry, help me, help me. And that captain himself dove in the water and saved my life. I, I love him and I just have to point that out. Isn't that what we're doing with Jesus? He dove in and saved us and we just have to point that out. That he is the Lamb of God. That's our story, I think. That he jumped in from a peaceful shore and dove in to a rising tempest that we sang about tonight and saved us. And he is the captain of our salvation. I am pointing to Jesus. Are we pointing really to Jesus enough? God's called us, I think, to be highway builders, to smooth the way to people's life, to be signposts, to be pointing people to Jesus as an answer to their sin. Second, 
The second truth we see in this passage is what is a prerequisite of salvation, repentance. Repentance is the prerequisite for salvation. Mark says in in verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's not the baptism that is the thing that saves them. It's the repentance and being, being willing to come to God and say, I am sorry for my sin. Mark's phraseology is baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It sounds like it might be baptism for salvation, but it's not. When you look in the Greek, the idea is of an outward manifestation of a repentance of forgiveness on the inside. So when you get to the language and read it, it's an outward thing that I've done because of an inward change. Now, we say that as Baptists. We recognize that. But you remember when the Bible was translated in 1611 by King James, you were dealing with the Church of England that believed in sprinkling and, and you know, other kinds of baptisms. And so they did not use the word immerse. They used the word baptizo. What they simply did is take the word baptism and made it sound English, baptize. So they didn't translate it. They transliterated it. They moved it over into the language as it sounded, not as it should have been translated. So that's where we get the word baptized from. John's audience, as you know, were Jews. That's who he was speaking to. They were familiar with baptism. When a Gentile proselyte came into the Jewish faith, there were three things that had to happen. First of all was circumcision. They hadn't been circumcised. They were circumcised because of Abraham. Second was a sacrifice that had to be made for that person. He stood in need of atonement, and only a blood sacrifice was acceptable. So circumcision, blood sacrifice, and baptism. They had to undergo a baptism for cleansing. And it wasn't, again, a sprinkling. It was a washing of them entirely. They immersed themselves. That baptism, again, couldn't be a sprinkling. It was a bath, so to speak. So the Jews understood what John was saying. There was no doubt about what he was talking about. Uh, It was a symbolic washing on the outside because of the washing of the inside on repentance. So you and I are more comfortable with that than some denominations are. Uh, But that's the, the sacrifice has already been made. And so we accept that. He was, it was un, unusual about John's baptism is he was now asking the Jews to submit to that. Where a proselyte would have to do it before to become Jewish, now he's asking the Jewish people to do the same thing, to come to God and repent of their ways and show that it was a matter of a heart relationship to God and not a birth relationship. I'm Jewish, Right? I'm Jewish, so I don't need to be baptized. No, no, you need to be baptized because of a relationship that's wrong with God. You need to fix that relationship and show that it's been fixed by that baptism of repentance. And so it was different. That's why they call it John's baptism. It was a different thing. It was a centerpiece to repent. You understand the word repent is a uh, military term. It means to go in the other direction, to go in a U-turn. It's an about-face is what we would say. So the message of the Bible is that we're all sinners, that we want to experience God's forgiveness, then we must admit that we are sinners and turn around and go the other way. That's repentance. You look in the Bible and you see repentance all over the place. You see it in the life of Noah. 
He was a preacher of righteousness and repentance. He told the people to repent or you're going to drown. They didn't listen to him. They laughed at him. And they died in their sins. You, you go on in the New, uh, Old Testament and you find Jonah when he went to that wicked city of Nineveh and preached, what? Repent or God is going to destroy your city. In that case, the people did repent, didn't they? Uh, he was upset about it, but, but they were saved because they repented and turned their hearts toward God. The Bible teaches that repentance alone will not save, but we, you and I, must put our faith in Jesus. I can't just be sorry for my sins. I have to place my faith in something. And as you read through the New Testament and as you read through Mark, you understand that it is, it is the prerequisite is repentance but trust in jesus is where i come to a saving grace and i understand what my sin is it's not been overlooked i've gone in another direction and i recognize i need someone to forgive me to make that sacrifice like the proselytes had to do sacrifice had to be made and that made was that was made in jesus he is our only hope for salvation again the song we sang about that i think this morning third Third, John teaches us in this passage that kingdom living is more about Jesus and less about me. Kingdom living is more about Jesus and less about me. You look at verses 5 through 8 here in what we've read earlier. Then all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem went out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel hair and and with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was preaching saying, after me comes one mightier than I, after I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 tells us that John's ministry was wildly successful. People were flocking to John. They saw something in John's message that they did not see in the stilted religion of the Jewish faith. The scribes and the Pharisees taught with no power. Remember, in the New Testament, it says Jesus taught with power, unlike anybody else. Well, John was the precursor to that, and he's the one that pointed the way. We see that in verse 6. You know, I I always thought, you know, somewhere along the way, we look at Johnny, somewhere between a cross between Bigfoot and a homeless person. I mean, you know, the the image we get of him is like, oh, man, uh, I don't know if I'm going to look at the guy. But you understand, that's what people looked like back then. It was just a description. It wasn't like he was that unusual, uh, but he was a man who lived his message. Not only his words, but his whole life was a protest of what was going on around him and how people were living. Remember that that John was a Nazarite from birth. As you remember some things about that, that meant that they had to be dedicated at birth to live a certain kind of lifestyle. If you lived a Nazarite vow, you wouldn't eat any product of a grape, fermented or unfermented. It made no difference. You didn't participate, lest it affect you. You could not cut your hair. You could not come near a dead body because it would defile you. There were certain 
ways of a Nazarite vow. Now remember, talking about Jesus being a Nazarene and he lived in Nazareth is different than a Nazarite vow. Many people see them as the same and confuse that. You understand that John was a Nazarite from the way that he lived. He chose to live those strict rules and it showed people his commitment to God. It was a lifestyle. It was serving God. But yet he had this giant congregation. He, he never played the mega pastor, you know, card where he, you know, drove up in an expensive car and, and wore the newest clothes and lived in the biggest house or anything like that. He lived a completely different life, a simple life, a life of self-denial. Isn't that what we're called to do? The same thing, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. He recognized that his job was to magnify Jesus not himself. He was not, he said, even worthy to untie his shoes. The lowliest slave would meet people at the door, unlatch their shoes, wash their feet, and then they would come in from the outside refreshed. That's why it was so scandalous when Jesus knelt down at the Lord's Supper and tied the the girdle basically around himself with the washcloth and he washed the disciples feet and they're going you 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 can't do this you know you're you're the rabbi you're not a slave you shouldn't be doing this and then you remember peter well if you're going to wash me wash all of me and he said no peter no that's not what this is about if he had claimed to be the messiah i think many of his followers would have believed him if john had said i'm the messiah they would have looked at him we believe you the way you live But John didn't have a Messiah complex. He knew that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was not the Messiah. You you know the story in in the New Testament. John lost a lot of his disciples to Jesus. Some of them complained about it. Why don't you go talk to them? You know, why are they leaving? And he says, "You you don't understand. I'm not the Christ. I was sent ahead of him. I'm not the one people should cling to he must increase i must decrease and so you look in the new testament and you see that we live in a culture where nobody wants to be number two right this year it was in february kansas city whooped up on the philadelphia eagles right when it was all over with the philadelphia eagle players never ran out on the field and said we're number two we're number two no that's ridiculous. Nobody would do that. We live in that kind of society that nobody wants to be number two. And yet, as we go in Christ, he must increase and I must become second. I must be behind. I have to take a step back. He is in the front and I am behind in the curtain, behind it all. I just bring people to him. I don't get credit for what gets done. And I think the truth is the greatest joy in our lives comes when we see people come to Jesus instead of us. They don't pat us on the back, but they talk about their love for their Savior now. They don't talk about their church. They don't talk about their friends. They talk about Jesus. That's the goal. He must increase. I must decrease. John's message was repent. And be baptized. Show that there's been a change. Unless you repent, you shall perish. 
likewise, he says. And so they were given the opportunity to do that. There's a town in Labrador, Canada called Wabush. It was isolated for a number of years, and, and, and it was almost impossible to get there. You, you, could, you could get there maybe if you had a, a, a dog sled, or maybe if you dropped in you know, some way with a helicopter, but just getting there, you, you had to walk. There was no roads. Finally, Canada built a road in, but they only built one road in. One road in, one road out. If you want to go to Wabash, you had to go in one way. If you wanted to leave, you had to leave the same way. I think we have to recognize, we have to turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus. If you're already saved, I'm sure many of you are, if you're not all, let me ask you a few questions. Are you smoothing the way for others to see Jesus? Are you leveling, leveling the road for them so that it's easier for them to see who Jesus is? I think I do that by living a consistent Christian life. As I live a Christ-like life, people will want to know why, and I can point them to Jesus. Am I pointing them to Jesus through that witness of not only the way I live, but the way I speak. And I think finally, am I allowing Jesus to be magnified? Am I submitting more of myself to God every day so that he increases and I decrease? It is not about me, John said. It is about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and thank you for the book of Mark and how it speaks to us of who the Savior is and what he has accomplished. Help us, Father, to be the levelers of the way to Jesus, to make the path straight and smooth so that others can see Jesus. Help us never to interfere or get in their way by the way that we live. It was clear in the New Testament time that the scribes and the Pharisees had gotten in the way and there needed to be a change. And John showed that change to them. And then they showed, then he showed them Jesus. May we help others see the way and the Savior. We pray in his holy name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.